Please turn with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9 is where, of course, we will be this evening. We will look at this whole chapter here, which is really, much of it is a prayer of Ezra. We remember all the things that have been going on thus far. We have a lot of the history that is that has been uh, given to us by Ezra concerning the people of God since the time that they were first able to go back home. We remember, and this is going to come into play in our text tonight, we remember that the children of Israel were taken to Babylon in the very beginning of, of this, this uh, book here. They were taken to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. They had served other gods. They had worshipped to them. They had made altars to their particular gods throughout the land. And the Lord raised up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to come in to sack Jerusalem, to deport them out, and to take them to Babylon. The only ones that were left in the land were the poor that were in the land who intermingled with the other peoples that Nebuchadnezzar had displaced there which ended up uh, coming about as the Samaritans. They have been in captivity for 70 years, and that first generation was able to come back home, according to the promise of the Lord. The Lord had prophesied through Jeremiah that it would be 70 years, and they would be able to go back home, that the Lord would once again restore the fortunes of Israel. He would once again have mercy. And so that first generation, 40-some thousand of the people of God that were in Babylon were able to go back home. They had began to rebuild the temple. We remember how the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying in, that, in those days because the work had stopped. They, they rekindled the desire for the people of God to finish the temple, all of that. Now we're in the reign not of Cyrus, not of Xerxes, but now we're in the reign of Artaxerxes. And Ezra has been sent once again by the king to the land of promise. He took about 5,000 people with him. He had prepared for this journey. He had made sure that they had everything that was needed. Many of these people, of course, had never been to Israel. Many of them had never even saw the former temple. They don't know what it's like to worship at the temple, especially for the Levites and the priests. They have no idea what it's like to, to fulfill their duties that God has raised them up to do. And here they make this four-month journey back to Israel according to the good hand of the Lord being with them who gave them favor with the king. The king had provided everything that they needed, even give them money for the rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the walls, whatever they needed for sacrifices. God was with them. They make this four-month journey and they get to Jerusalem they rest for three days, and then the first thing that they do is begin to once again worship. They worship God, their first priority. And now we're going to read of some bad news for Ezra. Now, from the time that first generation until now has been many decades. And throughout that time, things have seemed to went downhill spiritually, when they first got back, they were so eager 
to do what was right in the sight of the Lord and to establish the law once again and to establish a right relationship with the Lord, to serve Him faithfully, to serve Him according to what He has commanded in the law. But as we're going to find out, over time, over those decades and decades since that first generation, perhaps they got at ease. Perhaps they lost their focus. Whatever the case is, Ezra now finds that they are committing great sin in the eyes of God. Not really some good news for someone who just made a 900-mile trip over a four-month period to get back into, to come into the land of promise, the land that he always heard of, who, who he desired to serve, this great people in the land, and to hear of what is going on. Some of the great difficulties that he finds is not that the people are acting in rebellion and that the leaders just can't control them. What he ends up finding is that the leaders themselves have been leading this unfaithfulness to the Lord. Leaders have a great responsibility, obviously, because they are to lead by example. They are to teach correctly. They are to teach rightly according to what the Scripture commands. They are held to a, a standard that, that is to be set forth before the people that you have a, a good example to look to. But what happens when leaders fail? You've heard it said that as the pulpit goes, so the church goes. What happens when the leaders compromise? How do we recover from that? What, what do we do? How do we handle uh, and respond to that sort of situation? And while we find that the religious leaders of Israel here have compromised and have fallen into great sin, it's not only that the leaders of the religion, if you will, have fallen into sin, but these are also the leaders of the nation. The nation is in peril. What shall they do? What does Ezra do? How does he handle this situation that God's wrath would not once again be upon him? Well, one of the main things that we see here is his prayer. He prays to the God of heaven. He prays on behalf of the people. He prays in and even including himself as a representative of the people of, of the great sin that has occurred. He places himself in that. He, he has this, this desire to see God's favor. He has this a desire that the people of God would serve him faithfully and would turn from this, this sin. This nation that God had, had created, he had called Abraham out of all the people of the earth. He called Abraham. He established covenant with him and his seed so that when you get to Isaac, who was the son of promise, and then to Jacob, who was of the promise, and then you have the 12 patriarchs, and then all their children that produce the children of Israel, this nation God had brought out of Egypt after they were enslaved. He gave him his law. He entered into relationship with him. God truly disclosed himself to a people. There was no guessing who he was. There's no guessing what was pleasing to him. He had truly revealed himself to this people out of all the nations of the earth. He entered into covenant with them. And what do they do? But they consistently turn from him. And now, once again, out of all that has happened, 
God's anger had burned against them to begin with. The northern, the northern part of Israel had, had fell to the Assyrians because of their lack of unfaithfulness. The southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians because of their unfaithfulness. God's grace has been with them. They're able to come back home. And now, when he gets there, he finds that they are committing the same things that they've done before. It's very tragic in one sense. How soon we forget. How soon people forget the God who delivered them. But we see this amazing prayer here. A prayer that is a good example for us as well. This isn't to say, and I definitely don't want anyone to misunderstand. This is not at all to say that America is the covenant nation of God. Because it's not. God did not enter into covenant with America. He entered into covenant with Israel. Now, we can look at the founding of our nation. We can see the, the, the people of God that had come here in the very beginning. Some of the great Puritan preachers that were here and they were leading the people in preaching. And, and then you see how things began to wane off. And you see in the 1730s and the 1740s how you had powerful preachers like Edwards and others that that God used to cause revival and how the, the, the New England colonies had once again turned to the Lord and over time it wanes again and then God sends revival, but over time it continues to denigrate until now you have to the point that we are. So what should we do? Well, taking example from Ezra here, the very things that we should be doing is certainly praying. Seeking God's favor, confessing our sin before Him, and pleading for mercy. We should not be indifferent to the evils of our day. It is one thing not to be surprised at them in one sense, but in another way we should be because of just how outlandish things get. But we recognize that sinners do what sinners do. But we should indeed be appalled at what happens, as Ezra is. We should indeed be mourning the things that go on in our own nation. And we should be seeking our Lord's face that he would indeed heal and, and rid this country of the wickedness that it so prides itself in. So let's, let's jump in here. Let's look at this because there's, there's a lot to speak of here. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will read Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 to 15. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. And let us hear the words of the living God. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. 
Then everyone who trembled at the words of, of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening, evening offering. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn. And I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our prince, our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame, as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. So now, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the people? who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we again come into your presence. Father, we ask that you would guide our thoughts tonight as we work our way through this passage. Father, give us a heart that is desirous to honor you, to never compromise, but to always bring glory and honor to our Lord Jesus. Help us to reflect upon his sacrifice, what he accomplished on our behalf. Let us reflect upon your great grace, which you have extended to us in him. Give us the resolve, Father, to honor you in our faithfulness to you and our desire to see our nation healed, see it rid itself of the evil that is so permeated of this land. Well, Father, give us a heart, not just for the lost, but as the, for the nation as a whole, to seek your face, to pray, to do whatever you desire of us to spread the gospel, to declare your truth that others would understand and see. 
Father, help us this evening and teach us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So to some disturbing news here. After everything that has happened, God's anger burning against them for all their idolatry, all the abominable acts that they were committing uh, prior to uh, Jerusalem being sacked and all of that. They were, they, they were serving other gods. They were sacrificing to other gods. They were sacrificing their children to, to these foreign gods, just as the, the pagan nations had done as well. They had taken the, the elements of the, the nations as far as their religious life and had began to practice them, to implement them, and to mix them in with the worship of God. God had given them warning after warning, sending prophet after prophet to turn from their wickedness, to repent, and still they would not. And so, in God's anger, He raised up the Assyrians who took out the northern kingdom. He raised up the Babylonians to attack and deport the southern kingdom. Even in all of his chastisement and the punishment that he inflicted because of their unfaithfulness, a punishment, by the way, that he had told them was going to happen all the way back to the time of Moses in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, if you are unfaithful, these are the things that will happen. So even in God's punishment, in God's anger and his wrath, he was still being faithful because he told them he was going to do it when they entered into covenant, and he indeed fulfilled it. So after all this, after God working as, as great as he did, even during the time that they were in Babylon, we, we went through Daniel. We've seen how the Lord had magnified himself uh, before the king, even in the book of Daniel, until the time of the Persians, how the Lord was demonstrating his his might and his glory, uh, even during the time of the Persians and how he was giving the people of God favor with the kings to do the things that they did, to send them home, to send them home not just empty-handed, but to take from the royal treasury of the Persians and give them whatever they needed. After all of that, they get to go home, back to the land. They build the temple. They restore worship. Ezra gets there, and he finds that they are once again committing the abominations of the peoples of the land. Now, all of these ites that you're reading here, these Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, these are the who's who of Israel's enemies. These are the enemies that, that the children of Israel encountered when they came out of Egypt. These are the nations that God had driven out because of their wickedness and their evil. And these are the very ones that the people of God are now intermarrying with. Now, let's say this from the outset. <clears throat> because it, it is taken by this, uh, by this way by some. God is not and has not ever commanded that people should not mix races or ethnicities. Because you have those, and I'll... I, I would say that you know exactly the ones that I'm referring to up in Elizabethan at a particular church who was teaching and preaching from the pulpit that white people should never intermingle with, with black people and you should never intermingle with Hispanic people and all of this sort of thing, and it goes back and forth. 
whites should marry whites, Hispanics marry Hispanics, black marry blacks, all of that. And they begin to start pulling from passages like this in order to justify it. And that is never justifiable because the Scripture never commands such a thing, ever. There is a reason why the children of Israel were not allowed to intermingle with the nations. These nations were pretty much like them as far as, as ethnicities were concerned in one sense. It's not that they were that, that different. There was a reason why God said, do not intermingle with the peoples of the nations. And he tells them this in a number of different passages. We'll just look at a few so that we can get a good understanding here why the Lord had commanded this. It wasn't to be racist or any of that other jive that we, we see uh, that it turns into. In Exodus chapter 34, we'll begin in verse 11. You can jot these down. You can go back and look at them later if you'd like. But here's what we read. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land that they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall not make for yourself no molten gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 7. <clears throat> beginning in verse 1, again we read, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and Hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, why does he say this? He says, do not intermarry with the nations because they are going to cause you to serve other gods. 
in Joshua chapter 23, beginning of verse 11. He says, So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these, nation, yeah, drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Here's the reason why the Lord says, do not intermarry with them. They're going to cause you to stumble. They're going to cause you to serve other gods. Do not ally yourself with them because the temptation is there to compromise. And in the instance that you do this, Joshua says, know for certainty that the Lord is not going to bless you. The Lord is not going to be with you because you are now turning away from him and you are serving other gods, which are no gods at all. Understand that these nations are pagan nations that are serving all of these other gods, their Asherim and all of this, and they're no gods at all. They're nothing. But just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of corruptible man and a four-footed beast. They, they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, Paul says. Because they do this, and because of the wicked acts that they do, along with the worship that they give to these false gods, they, they are an abomination to the Lord. These are not innocent nations here. They are not just good people who happen to serve the other god. Maybe we should befriend them in order that they could come to know the real god. These are people that are, that are sending their children through the fire, as it says in the Old Testament. These are sacrificing their children to these false gods. The, they are not an innocent people. And the Lord is giving that warning. Do not compromise. Do not intermarry. Because when you intermarry, you're going to end up compromising. And a great example of that is Solomon. As wise as Solomon was, he did not follow his own advice. So many of his wives served their gods. And what happened? He ended up serving their gods as well. They became a trap and, and a snare to him. And this is what the people of God are doing again. They didn't separate themselves from the peoples of the lands. According to their abominations, he says. They're doing the very thing that caused the anger of the Lord to burn against him in the first place. And Ezra, after coming back into the land, when God has been so gracious to them and has been faithful unto them and sending them back home and he gets there. And what does he see? The very thing that caused them to be deported in the first place. The unfaithfulness of the people of God. And it's not just the people who are doing it. It's the leaders that are doing it. It's the Levites, the priests. Some of the princes and the rulers, he says, have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. How they forget so easy. They have compromised. And they have allied themselves with the enemies of God. When Ezra hears about this, this is genuine mourning 
on the, place, on, on the part of Ezra here. This isn't just acting out. It isn't just trying to make a scene. This is a genuine act of great mourning on the part of Ezra. He says, when I heard about this, when I heard about all the things that the people of God were doing, the covenant people of God, I tore my garment and my robe, pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. What that means, he sat down appalled, he sat in stunned silence. It affected him that much that he mourned because of what the people were doing. Because of the great sin that they were just committing. Because of their unfaithfulness to the God of their fathers. The God of their salvation who had delivered them. He sits stunned in silence. These are the religious leaders who have compromised. And this is happening even today. Even the people of God who are leaders today are not exempt from this. And it is being committed very often. Whenever you see the leaders of, of a denomination or the leaders of a church or any of that who are allying themselves with, with worldly ideas and worldly philosophies and they are disregarding the word of God in order to uphold the morality of the world, they are compromising. They are not being good people, if you will. That's what worldly people like to look at. They're like, why can't you be more like them? Because they're not being faithful to God. That's why we're not going to be like them. Well, you're just, you're just judgmental. You're a bigot. You're this, you're that. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that when it comes to the issue of morality, when it comes to understanding what is right and good before God, you can only have that objective morality because... God exists and God has disclosed Himself and what is good is consistent with the very nature of God. He defines what is good. You rule out God, you have no standard of good. You have no understanding or no standard of how to differentiate between right and wrong when you rule out the Lord. He's the standard. And when things, things come up, that's the standard that we look to. Is this in line with the very nature of God? No, it is not. Well, God is love. And you, you ought to just love people. And, and on and on and on it goes. And yes, God is love. The greatest attribute of God that is emphasized in Scripture above any other is God is holy. That means God is set apart. God is set apart from sin. He is the absolute epitome of perfection in everything that He is and everything that He does. In Him, there is no darkness he is perfection. And anything that is inconsistent with that is unholy. His great attributes that we talk about, His love and all of that, we understand this, that God is holy and therefore His love is a holy love. It is not just an arbitrary love that He's just going to give out affection to everybody without any uh, without any standard of, of anything. God does not delight in sin. He does not delight in wickedness. He does not delight in evil. He delights in righteousness. And what is righteousness? That which is consistent with His nature that we find in the Scripture. It is not honorable to compromise. It may be honorable to 
the unbelieving may be honorable to them, it is not honorable to the one who matters. As we've said before, then the day that you stand before the Lord, everybody else that agrees with you, they're not going to be there with you. You will stand alone before a holy God and give an account. How we ought to mourn, as Ezra does. And not just mourn for the church as a whole in our nation that is compromised and has implemented so many ridiculous things into the worship of God, so many worldly things into the church that it ceases to become a true church. When you go back to the Reformation and the reformers who came after, you have three marks of a true church, Right? The true preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the correct administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. You lose any one of the three, the others are going to fall. And that church will cease to be a true church. There are so many that carry the name church that are anything but a church. It's a country club. It's a place for self-help teaching. It is not a place that seeks to honor the Lord. It's a place that wants to be popular among the unbelieving. It's not a church. You have so many that say things like, well, we don't want to give the appearance of being a traditional church. Well, what does that even mean? Does it mean the, the kind of building that you use? What? That's not even the church anyway. What do you mean by that? Are you saying that your identity as a traditional church has changed to become more likable and worldly? Then you got some problems already. Your identity as the people of God, the people of God being the church, should be righteousness and holiness in the truth. Period. This is so prevalent. But it, in one sense, it shouldn't be a surprise but at the same time, we should mourn for the condition of the church because when you have leaders that advocate such things, all they're doing is leading the rest of the people to do the same. As the pulpit goes, so the church goes, and sometimes there's not even a pulpit anyway. But as the teaching of the church goes, that's, that's the direction. The leaders of the church are, are leading the charge. They're steering the ship. And you have people that are following. You have so many aberrations of what the true church should be, not just on the more liberal sides, but even on the sides of, of the cults and all of that. There's so many temptations and so many snares that are out there that cause people to compromise in one way or the other. Either In either end, they're, they're compromising truth. Truth should always be what we desire. In matters of faith and life, it's always what does the Word of God teach us and then let us do that. These are also the leaders of the nation. Not just the religious life of Israel, if you will. This is the leaders of the entire nation that are being unfaithful to the Lord. This is a big deal because it sends the whole nation in peril. It's because of the unfaithfulness of, of the people of God that the entire nation suffered. 
That's why it was so serious back then whenever you even heard of a, a city that was in Israel that were being unfaithful to the Lord. The rest of the tribes were to go to that city and to seek out what was going on, to find those that were guilty, to render correct punishment, that the rest would not do it. Why? Because what happened in one city affected the entire nation if it went un, unpunished and went uh, unaddressed. We like to do things a little differently. We like to pretend that we're all islands unto ourselves, and well, what they do doesn't really matter, and what they do don't really matter. So why do we even pray on that? Let's just pray for our church here. Let's just pray for our people. When the, the responsible thing to do as the people of God is to understand that people are being led astray, and then on a grander scale across the nation, how people are being deceived. We should be praying for all of them. And not just our simple prayers that we do. <sighs> Lord, I pray for our leader, for our leaders. You know we don't like them, but we bring them up to you. That's not mourning over what's happening. That's not giving a sincere, heartfelt plead with the God of heaven to truly move and to work and to establish what is right in the nation in which we live. Things may change. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is we should be praying. We should be burying our face before the God of heaven. Only you can restore the hearts of your people in this nation that are being led astray by our various teachings. Those that are truly yours, you can restore them back. You can turn their hearts. For our leaders, we should pray for them to lead in righteousness. To lead accordingly. Because as Paul says in Romans 13, they, he, they are specifically called ministers of God. They are to establish right justice within the land. And we should be praying that indeed they would do so. And that's in fact what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, right? He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And here he defines all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. Entreaties, prayers, petitions should be made on behalf of all men. Not just those that are the common people. Not just those that are the, the poor of the land. But on behalf of all the people. Not just these, but be in prayer for the kings and all who are in authority. He gives an understanding of all kinds of men is the idea. All classes of men. Those that are in the highest, that are the kings and the authorities, and also for the common folks, because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, all kinds of men, to be saved. 
God doesn't just save common people. He saves those that are in authority. He saves, he saves those that are leaders. And we should be praying for their salvation that God would move and would work in their hearts. Even of those that we think are just so far gone that, that there's just nothing there. God, just bring down the hammer, push the button, and let's get on with it. We should be praying on behalf of them to say, God, before the time comes, if it be your will, if you can open their eyes, no matter how darkened their hearts are, no matter how stony their hearts are, we know that you can take their out, take out their heart of stone. You can give them a heart of flesh. You can cause them to walk in your statutes. You can put your spirit within them. You can do all things. With man, it is impossible, but with God, it is not. Ezra was truly appalled at what all of them were doing. On a grand scale, the nation and the people of God and the religious life that they were to lead before God. But here's the interesting part. Out of all this, he gets this bad news. He begins to demonstrate this genuineness of his mourning. He's pulling out his hair. He's pulling out his beard. He's, he's rending his clothes. And he sits there in silence until the evening offering. Now, the evening offering is going to be around what we would understand is about 3 p.m. And it's at this time that he gets up. He, ar he arises from his humiliation, even with his garment and his robe torn, and he falls on his knees and he stretches out his hands and he begins to pray. This is at the time of the evening sacrifice. You know, why at this time? We don't know how long he was there. We don't know if he was there for hours. Maybe he was there for one hour. We don't know what time he got the news until the time that he rises up in order to pray at the evening sacrifice. Indeed, at this time, it was a, a time to, to offer prayers and all of that. But something so amazing that he chose at this time to do that, a time in which they would be sacrificing, a time in which it would be a reminder that this is what God had established. This is a, a demonstration of His grace to us. The time of the sacrifice. Because God had commanded them to sacrifice at certain times, to sacrifice once a year for the Day of Atonement, specifically on behalf of the people, that their sins would be forgiven. And so you have the time of the evening sacrifice, a great reminder of the grace of God and His forgiveness to them, and He rises up at this time. And he, he spreads out his hands, he falls on his knees, and he begins to plead with God as he is being reminded of the sacrifice. He's being reminded, indeed, of the gracious nature of God. He's being reminded, perhaps, of atonement, of, of forgiveness, of restoration, of hope. In a time in which he just can't say anything. That he is stunned in the time of the evening sacrifice, perhaps there was a, a glimmer of hope that came over him. God's grace is with us. God has established these things that our sins may be forgiven as we, as we perform these sacrifices, demonstrating that a life has been taken on our behalf that points to a greater sacrifice that is yet to come in which the Lord will truly take away our sin and forgive our iniquity. And so he rises, he stretches out his hands, and he begins to confess. He says, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift up 
my, my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. In light of even this, in light of their sins, in light of their wickedness that they were committing, at the evening sacrifice, he has hope, and so he, he pleads before the God of heaven. We have sinned against you. He just gets into town. He's not even part of this. And yet, he includes himself within that. He says, our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. He's not pointing out and he's saying, their guilt has risen above the heavens. Their guilt, their iniquities have risen above our heads. He doesn't do that. He identifies himself with the people of God because that's whom he came to minister to. That's whom he came to serve. He was a scribe. He was a teacher of the law. That was his intent, to teach the law, to teach the people of God the, the Scripture, to teach them the truth. And so when he sees this iniquity that has happened, what does he do? He identifies himself with them. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer. This is me too. Our sins have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown to even to the heavens. And yet, again, at the time of the evening sacrifice, there's that glimmer of hope. We confess before our God and plead for His mercy and demonstrate or, or see the demonstration of God's grace that He has extended to us because that's what He's going over. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to soar, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Being reminded of the grace of God. In the evening sacrifice, there is that reminder of the grace of God. There is the reminder of forgiveness. There's the reminder that, that God has made a way that, that we can still come into a right relationship even after committing such abominable acts. A sacrifice that, that is a reminder of what God provides. God has provided this, that you may come into His presence and may plead before Him, may cast all your care upon Him. A sacrifice was made in order that you may come and to confess your sins, to acknowledge your sins before God and know that He hears you. He's not turning His, His face from you, but that because of a sacrifice made for you, He hears you. He gives His ear to His people. This is, this is what Ezra is going through. It was a reminder to him, God is with us. God has shown us grace and God will hear our prayer. He is our God and we are his people. Even though we have committed such abominable acts. What does he remind the people of God even in his prayer? What does he remind the Lord? As if he had to. But he does confess this. For we are slaves Yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us. 
but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. There's a great acknowledgement here, one that we shouldn't miss, is the fact that he's confessing, you haven't forsaken us. We have forsaken you. You didn't abandon us. You have extended loving kindness to us. You have extended grace to us in the sight of all the kings. And what do we do on behalf of, of what you've done? We have forsaken you. Yet in our bondage, he's not forsaken us, but it extended loving kindness to us. That this loving kindness, this word has said, is that covenant love that God has extended to his people. That is a great reminder of God's, of God's dedication and his commitment to you. That is a very important word, by the way. Loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated kindness. Depending on what your translation shows there, it is the Hebrew word has said. It is covenant loyal love. His covenant loyal love has not been, been taken away. It's been extended to us. Even though at times we forsake the Lord, and the, and the song that we sing, Come Thou Fount, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. That is so true of all of us, isn't it? We are indeed prone to wander. Wander from our Lord. Wander from our King. And in the times that we do that, what is it that we are to do once, once we come to ourselves and we, we understand what has happened, then we plead before our God. And what does the Scripture tell us? I pray that you do not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Through the sacrifice of His Son, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is hope, there is deliverance, all of that. Christ has died once for all time. The just for the unjust. The godly for the ungodly. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And through his death, through his sacrifice, we are privileged to come into the presence of our holy God to receive grace in our time of need, to receive forgiveness in our time of wandering, in our times of forsaking the Lord. There is great hope in Christ, even for a nation that seems to have turned its back on him. An entire nation which, which revels in, in evil and wickedness. There's filth everywhere. You can't turn on anything without seeing filth. You can't turn on anything without hearing filth. It's everywhere. And it is truly a demonstration of, of the state of man and the heart of man. But the very thing that we should be doing is the very thing that he's doing and reminding ourselves of what God has said, what God has commanded of us as he goes through those passages in Deuteronomy of God's commands to us. And he has this prayer on behalf of the people of God. He's, he's, this is intercessory prayer. He's praying on behalf of them, praying that God would be merciful, that God would move, that God would do something. That God would not be idle, and of course we know God is never idle. But he acknowledges the very fact that he's righteous. You've left us an escape remnant as it is to this day. We, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Here we are, we're laid bare. We have no hope but you, but in Christ we have a great hope. 
for sure. In Christ, we can be restored. In Christ, the land can be turned to you. The people of God that are through the land that are believing a lie can be turned to you. The unbelieving that are believing a lie and that are great enemies of you, you can turn their hearts. You can cause great revival here as you've done in history past. For God is able. But what is necessary is that the people of God, rather than pointing out and, and, and saying this and saying that about that one because they have a different viewpoint or whatever, should be falling on their face, understanding that those people are lost, those people are damned, and until the grace of God comes into the life, they're going to continue to do the very thing that they're doing. So let us pray on behalf of them. Let us plead before God to work in their hearts that they would lead by example, that they would lead in righteousness, and that the people of God would not be deceived by such teachings that are prevalent throughout the so-called church in America. There's great lessons for us here. The things that we should be doing, especially in our time of prayer. Not to just pray for those we love, but to pray for those that hate us. Pray for those that are the enemies of God. That God might be merciful. And that God might change their heart. Intercessory prayer is something that we should be doing and as we are doing it, being reminded of the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus, being reminded that we would be in the same place had it not been for His grace in our life, but being reminded that God is able to do according to all that He desires, and no one is so far gone that they cannot be saved. For when the grace of God pierces into their hearts, even the darkest of hearts cannot overcome the light of Christ. Let us be reminded of the great hope that we have and that even, even though things get difficult, for sure, there are great disappointments. There's times in which we are really appalled and we stand stunned because of all the nonsense and the great immorality that goes on in the nation. Let us be reminded of the God who is the sovereign one over the nation. And let us pray to Him. Let us plead the, the cause of the nation before Him. Let us pray for our leaders. Let us pray for the unbelieving. Let us sincerely and genuinely lift him up before God and pray that God would work and give us the resolve never to compromise, that we would guard our own hearts, that we could lead by example, that we would lead others into truth and never compromise. So many things here to learn, and I pray indeed that we would give heed to that the things that we've, we've learned here. Seek to implement these by the, by the power of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And God would be honored. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we know that you are the King of the nations. No matter what goes on, we know who is the true ruler. We know that you can do all things. We know that no task is difficult for you. We know that no person is, is so deep into sin that they cannot be reached by you. You can do all things. It was you that spoke creation into existence. It is you that sustains it with your mighty power. Oh, Father, we indeed pray that you would work within this nation. The horrible 
things that occur. Father, I pray that you would raise up leaders and or change the hearts of our current leaders to stop these terrible things that occur. That they would lead in righteousness, that they would implement laws in righteousness, that they would perform the very task that you have called them to. Now we pray for the lost. Oh, Father, give us a heart for the lost. Let us not be indifferent. Let us not be just standing idly by. Father, help us to have a heart for the lost as the people of God did that we read of in your word. Give us courage. Keep us close, Father. Let us never stumble. Let us never bring dishonor to you. But always stand firm in your truth. For you have the words of life. Where else could we go? Father, be glorified in us and move mightily within us that we will be like those whom we read of. To you be the praise, the glory, the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed. <laughs>